If you haven't heard about Anchor by Spotify, let me give you the rundown. Basically, it's the easiest way to make a podcast, and everything you need is all in one place, and here's how it works. Anchor lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer, so no matter what your setup's like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to the most popular listening platforms, including Spotify, with a single tap. Anchor is also the only place you can publish a video podcast to Spotify. With Anchor, creators can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, Anchor is totally free. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. The Remarkable History and Recovery of the Hunley, the Lost Confederate Submarine. The South is full of history, extraordinary tales of questionable characters, outlaws, heroes, and thought-provoking narratives passed down from generation to generation like grandma's recipes. These real-life stories and exaggerations of fiction have helped shape the South and have created a larger-than-life accounts of legend. Each week, we will uncover fun facts of historical events, interesting places, famous people, and everything in between from all around the South. Subscribe now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, YouTube, or your favorite podcast listening app to listen to the show for free. So grab your sweet tea, fried green tomatoes, and pull up a chair as we uncover little-known facts about the uncommon history of the South. Hello and welcome to Uncommon History of the South. I'm Brian. And I'm Harold. Harold, let's catch up on your build. Tell us about your car. Are we, are well, we ready to drive it yet? No, not yet. Uh, we are we are getting upholstery done right now. So hopefully, maybe next couple weeks, we'll see. If we do, we'll post some pictures. Well, I'm ready to go for a ride. I'm past ready. I'm tired <laughs> of working. I'm ready to have some fun. <laughs> What uh, All right, so you want to start out with uh, what happened today in Kentucky history? Yes. Now, we're recording this March 17th, and uh, today in 1775, Richard Henderson, a North Carolina judge representing the Transylvania Company, met with three Cherokee chiefs and purchased land known as what we know now as Kentucky, which was between 17 and 20 million acres. Wow. And it was at the Treaty of Sycamore Shoals. Now, Brian, the problem with that is he had no authority through the government to do that. So guess what? What? All those that invested in the Transylvania Company, it all defunct. Lost their money. Some people lost land and a lot of work, including Daniel Boone and people like that. They didn't have a real right to those claims. So his he didn't go through the proper channels, I guess, is how, and I'm not authority on this, but so I he know. was a speculator, and yes. he was yes. speculating mm-hmm. there. Yep. Well, since you bring up the three Cherokee chiefs, I have been doing some research on my family ancestry, mm-hmm. and I just found out I am a descendant of Chief Lawrence Bigfeather. I thought you looked like him. <laughs> I, tell you, I have always thought that. <laughs> I don't, Lawrence Bigfeather. Bigfeather. I don't believe I've ever heard of it. And there's actually another one in there in, in my genealogy or in my ancestry that just says Indian. But I, they don't know much about him, but there's quite a bit uh, known about I, I was doing some research on him. There's quite a bit known about Chief Big Feather. Really? Yeah. Well, we'll have to dig into that. We might want to do a podcast. We on may him. have to do it. Chief Big Feather. But I just thought that would be interesting since you brought up the Cherokee Indians. Yeah. Okay. Also, in 1934, Kentucky's oldest radio station, you know who it is? Out of Louisville? 
Well, you, yeah, you're warm. It actually started there, I think. Wacky. I don't know. Well, WLAP. I think it started in 1922, and it got back on the air in 1934 in Lexington. And uh, so it, it's one of our oldest radio stations. Didn't know that. That's, That's interesting. Cool. And in 1979, John Webb Brown, Jr., governor of Kentucky, uh, married Mrs. America Phyllis George Brown. Wow. Isn't that neat? And now she has her own line of chicken. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she passed away, you know. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, she passed away. Was it last year, I think? Okay. Yep. Uh-huh. So tonight, uh, what are we going to talk about? What are you going to educate We're going to talk about the mystery of the Hunley. Okay. The mystery in Charleston Harbor in Charleston, South Carolina. Where do you want to start? Well, let's talk about uh, this, is, of course, occurred during the Civil War. And um, let's talk a little bit about what led up to them even wanting to design and build a submarine, the first submarine. Well, was this technology just starting? Non-existent. Okay, nothing before nothing. before they started designing? Nothing that, nothing that I can say was going on, especially in the southern United States. Now, there may have been something in Europe or other countries, I don't know. Um, and this may not be the first people to think of this. I'm sure they weren't. But they're the first people to really invest in it. Now, um, submarine warfare, you know, was something that was totally new technology. Oh, uh, yeah. For America, it's totally new technology. You would think, Brian, that the Confederate government would have sponsored this technology, but they didn't. But the problem the Confederacy had was most of the Confederacy's wealth was in cotton and goods, indigo, cotton, sugar cane, things like that. And our market was in Europe and England and France and so forth, European countries. So when the South had the blockade put up on them, when the northern ships came down and blockaded the southern harbors, that was a stranglehold on the economy of the South. Well, correct me if I'm wrong. The the North had had more men, had more artillery, and had 42 warships at mm-hmm. that time. So this was a way for them to take what resources they had to create an advantage against the North. Sure. Be- yeah. The North had the superior technology and, 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 and manufacturing capability. The South was more agrarian in economy, so they didn't have the industrial might that the North had. So they were at disadvantage to start with. So they depended upon England and foreign countries to bring in goods to this country. So this blockade of every southern port was a stranglehold on the South. And so the South was trying to come up with ways to break these, stop the, they, they tried putting like torpedoes, they called them, in the harbors where the ships would run into them and then explode and things like that. But nothing was very successful. And there was a couple guys named Horace Hunley and James McClintock. Now, this starts. This story starts in 1861 in New Orleans. Now, this is the start of the war, you know, is, is 1861. So this James McClintock and Horace Hunley and, and some other investors came up with the idea for this submarine. And the first one they did was called the Pioneer, and they tested it in, in Lake Pontchartrain. What they did was their idea was to take a long rope and put a bomb or a torpedo, they called it, behind it and they would go under the water under an enemy ship and then when they got to that point detonate that bomb under the ship and blow it up well there were several issues with that and it didn't work that well 
the bomb wouldn't stay straight behind the torpedo. I mean, the submarine for one thing. So they, <laughs> they they had trouble controlling it, and then they it accidentally sunk in Lake Pontchartrain during testing. So then they moved to Mobile Bay, and they started another project at at the Park and Lines Machine Shop. Now, uh, let's back up just a little bit. Let's not forget the name Horace Hundley because this is going to be important later. Okay. okay. So second of all, then they, they start this project, second project in Mobile Bay, and uh, this submarine was called the American Flyer. It's funny they called it American Flyer. Right. And Southern Flyer, no, it was American Flyer. <laughs> and uh, there was a, a young man there named Horace Hunley that worked, um, excuse me, uh, up just a minute George F. Dixon that worked there in the machine shop there's another name we need to remember uh, he's key to this story as well so this second submarine the American Flyer was was built and tested there in Mobile Bay and unfortunately it sank so they started a third submarine and they kept improving on this design they did learn from each one they, they learned the third submarine was called the Porpoise, and it was tested in Mobile Bay fairly successfully. So uh, they decided that they was going to move it to Charleston, South Carolina, to train a team of men, of eight men that took to do this. They were going to train this team, and they moved it by rail to Charleston. Now let, let's stop there. Can you imagine what it would have been like to have been a young man from the back roads somewhere in Alabama? be called to the ocean and say, hey, we're going to teach you how to operate this new submarine that nobody's ever heard, nobody's ever seen. Could you imagine what that would have been like, seeing something like that during that time? Well, I have a personal attachment to this story. We're going to get to that later. But I'm telling you, it, it was absolutely a suicide mission to me. Well, I can tell you, I, I don't think the whole Southern Army could have put me in that no, submarine. No, no, absolutely not. By the way, let's talk about this third submarine, about what it looked like, okay? Forty feet long. It was made out of three-inch thick wrought iron boiler material, okay? It had a height of only four feet. Now, what, how it, it, a crew of eight men, one, one captain, and it had a hand crank was the power. So you sit, yeah. So eight men cranked. Seven, seven cranked okay, and one, one was... was navigating you okay. might say he was the he was the captain now here's the thing that i learned uh and we'll talk about more about be, me being there and everything later but one of the things i learned about this hand crank was you didn't sit on the bench brian and crank it you couldn't because it would hit your knees these men were between you know five foot eleven and six foot two and they were hunched over this crank and they had to stand up every time the crank handle came around because it would hit them in the knees. They had to straighten their knees up so they didn't sit and crank it. Oh, my goodness. So they had to squat over this crank every time it went over. And you can kind of visualize how this would work. Now, did they also just have, like, one candle in there to light the whole? Well, th they could have as many candles as you want. But, see, when you burn a candle, you also burn, burn oxygen. oxygen. So um, oxygen was an issue. Now, it had what we call snorkels, had two fold-up tubes that came up that were probably four or five feet long that they could get under the water three or four feet, and those snorkel tubes come up and get air into the sub. But the problem with that was if air could get in, water could too. Mm -hmm. They really didn't have the technology to, uh, to, to, do, to, to put any kind of oxygen in there. 
So they would they had two conning towers, they call them. They had glass inside of them. They could see out barely. Now this glass you could imagine back then, I, you know, Civil War era glasses. Bubbles. Bubble and thick, and you could probably just barely see through it. You know, it would be very hard to see through it. And on the front of this thing, they had a spar that was 17 feet long. In other words, a, 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 just a bar that stuck out 17 feet long, and they had 135 pounds of powder in a bomb on the point of this spar. Hmm. Now, the object was is to go out into the harbor, find a wooden ship, because it had to be wood, and they would stick that spar in the ship and st- stab it with the, the bomb, back off, and pull a rope and detonate it. And the majority of the ships were still wooden at that time? Yes. Okay. Well, yeah, a good portion of them. They were iron, ironclads that were just war ships, but a lot of the ships that the, the American Navy had was wooden. They were s- steam sail ships. They had a side wheel that they actually operated under steam when, when wind wasn't available, and they also had a sail, so they were steam and sail. Um, it took uh, these men... All the effort, energy, and oxygen they had, this mission, they went out in the harbor five miles from where they took off. I can't imagine. No. Top speed of the submarine was four miles an hour. Wow. <laughs> I can't imagine. No. So the first crew there in Charleston was commanded by John Payne. And they were out practicing in the harbor, and a steamer came by. And the wake of the steamer capsized the submarine, and it went down, and five of the men were killed. Hmm. So the first training, they lost the first crew. The second crew was commanded by Horace Hunley. Now, that's, I told you his name would come back up. He was at the one of the investors and designers helped design this submarine. So he piloted eight men in the second and they were out in the harbor practicing in Charleston, and they stuck that spar in the mud and couldn't get off the bottom, and all of them perished. So did the, did they have to go down and recover this submarine each time yes. this happened? So. and had to get the bodies out and deal with the, the right. trauma of having to deal with all that. Wow. You know, most people would have given up. The first, probably the first crew would have probably just, you know, they would have given up and said this thing's a death trap. But they were so desperate to break this blockade. Now, again, this is not the Confederate government doing this. This is what really surprised me about this story. This is private enterprise. These are people that have a lot financially to lose because of this blockade. And also, you know, if they lost the war. Uh, and so they, they, this was self-motivation, you might say. Wow. Um, so they named the second, the third submarine, the Porpoise. They named it the Hundley, after Horace Hundley and his crew. So, so the mission became to go out and try to make this thing work. So they found another guy, George F. Dixon. <laughs> He's a <the> commander, <laughs> and uh, I, I think all the men on this cruise identified, but I don't have their names, and I won't bore people with all that. But anyway, there was seven other men and him in the ship. Now, there's a real interesting story about George Dixon. And while he was, and I'm holding it in my hand, and we'll take some pictures of this and put it on our Facebook, but I have a copy of a $20 gold piece. And this gold piece 
is bent by a bullet. And he was in the Battle of Shiloh as an, as an infantry soldier, and this $20 gold piece was given to him by uh, a girlfriend. And uh, I'll tell you her name, Queenie Bennett was her name. And this $20 gold piece got hit by a bullet and bent around this $20 gold piece wow. and saved his life. So he had it engraved, uh, George F. Dixon, Battle of Shiloh, the date, my life preserver. <laughs> and legend was that he had this in his pocket when he was commanding the Hunley submarine. So we'll talk about that more about that later. So this crew with, with uh, George F. Dixon as the commander went out uh, in February of 1864. They went out off Sullivan's Island, five miles, where this Housatonic ship. Now, Brian, I don't know about you, but I don't want to get on any ship that's got a Titanic in its name. Okay, <laughs> be it Titanic, Housatonic, or Brian Titanic, or any of the rest of them. Well, I'm telling you, they would have had a better time trying to baptize a cat as trying to get me in that submarine. No, they, no they, 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 no way I was going to get in that death trap. But anyway, these men were brave uh, beyond imagination, really. Oh, I mean, they, yeah, it was tremendous. Now, um, so they they go out and they stick their spar in this wooden ship, the Housatonic. They back off a certain distance and pull the rope, and boom, it's sinking. That was the first successful submarine mission that we know of anywhere in, in combat. That was the first successful ship sinking by a submarine that we know of, which today in our Navy, you know, that's just something that uh, is, a, it, you know, we, we take for granted submarines today. Back then, I mean, this was just unheard of. I mean, it was a brilliant ideal, but it was a flawed piece of work. But, right. it, but I mean, it was brilliant in its ideal conception. Well, it's a lesson in human uh, uh, spirit. I guess these men uh, were willing to risk it all. And they didn't really I think of themselves as going down as being the first or being in history. I don't think that was on well, any of Well, you know, they mind. were true pioneers of their time. Yeah. I think they just were determined to make this work. And they, they picked the right men for that job. Well, they, they, they were successful. They, they sunk the Housatonic. Now, here's where the legend begins and the story gets muddier. Supposedly, from the coast of Charleston in the harbor, they could see a blue light, which was a signal that the mission was successful. Now, Brian, I've never, <laughs> I've never understood this because let me ask you why. If I'm standing in Charleston Harbor and I look out there and I hear or see a huge explosion, a ship go down, I kind of think that was successful, right? Yeah. I don't think I'd need a blue light to tell me that I did, you know, because if you could see the blue light, you could see the explosion, right? Yeah, right. Okay. Now, I've been out there, okay? I was out there when they raised this Hunley, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that. But you're so far out past Fort Sumter, it's not in Charleston Harbor proper like I thought it was. This is way on out there. It's We were so far past Fort Sumter, we couldn't even see it. Hmm. So when when they supposedly signaled this blue light, I don't know where they would have seen it other than maybe Sullivan's Island, which was about five miles away, and that was their point of origin. But as they have done excavation on this Hunley now, I don't know if they've ever found anything in there that could give a blue light. Well, let me ask you this. Was 
Parse Hunley, was he considered a privateer during that time? Kind of like the Barbary Pirates and, and the different things. Well, I mean, uh, well, he, they, they were private in, industrialists. Uh, McClintock and him, they were. Um, well, did they did did the South government did they sanction these guys as they would? Yes. You know, as, as privateers, oh, yeah. they encouraged to, to do this. So, sure. the, so the, basically, they had the same deal. Whatever they captured, they got to keep. Well, as long as they were doing it in the name of the South against their enemy. Their object really wasn't to capture anything. It was just to open these harbors. Right. See, so they, they wanted to create so much terror with these ships that they would have to back off and give space. Well, those blockade runners, those guys that were coming in with those goods from England, uh, they, was, they would come in under steam and sail wide open. And the only way you could stop them was to shoot. What they did, they trained their cannons right on the water level, Okay. And when they would shoot, they would actually skip that cannonball across that water because they wanted to hit him right in the water line because then he would go down faster. And not all of these ships were hit with explosive shells. Some of them were just hit with solid shot, which just knock a hole in them, basically. So they would go down quicker. And they did not want those goods to get to the mainland. Now, here's another part of this story most people don't know, and I didn't know this till doing some research, but... One, you could you could buy a ship, go to England, load it down with goods, and come back and run that blockade. Even if you lost that ship, if you could get the goods unloaded, you could make a profit. Really? One trip. So these guys were willing. Some of them made Take several the trips. Oh, yeah. And they would come in, like I said, as fast. They wanted the fastest ships they could get. And they would try to outrun the blockade runners. And it became quite a cat and mouse game that went on in our harbors. It wasn't just Charleston. It was all up and down. I think it went happened all the way around into Texas. I think, you know, Mobile Bay and, and you know, all of our southern ports. Was the blockade called the, the Anaconda Plan? Yes. Because that's I think Winfield Scott was the first general that really saw the value. Talked to Lincoln about cutting off these harbors. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's fast forward a little bit. So the the... the the submarine never resurfaces. Um, the people in Charleston, you know, waited every day. You know, they waited, waited. Of course, you know, they, the, after a day or two, they begin to realize these guys are probably not coming back. And so they never could find them. So there were some missions that went out to try to find them or, you know, nothing. This went on for years. No one knew what happened to the Hunley and their crew. Well, I there think I'd read somewhere that P.T. Barnum offered $100,000 for yes. anybody that could bring it back. Yes. Mm-hmm. And in the 1980s, this story, and this is where I started getting involved. In the 1980s, I I'd, I'd saw this story, and I started getting interested in it. I thought, gee, I'd like to. And I, of course, I was thinking in the harbor at Charleston proper. I didn't realize how far out this thing had, what this happened. So they know where the Housatonic sunk. So they, they do know that. So that's... That's a pretty well-known fact. Well, kind of common sense ought to tell us that that submarine's probably not going to be far from that. From where the Lusitanic went, went down. down. And it's probably going to be between that point and Sullivan's Island where they were left and where they were going to go back to. Now, you got to realize on Sullivan's Island and some of these islands around Charleston, there was Confederate artillery that kept those ships back. See, they weren't just hanging out there, those those ships would have been bombed, I guess, or, or shot at from the from the from the inland. So they had so to, they keep, had to keep stay a distance out. Yes, they far had to stay away. out of artillery range. 
So then in the 1980s, several people started the kind of resurgence of interest. You know, we need to find this thing. There were other ships being found, you know. Uh, there were treasure ships found. The Atocha was found and all this. And there was a lot of people who said, man, we need to find this. And so the author Clive Cussler, and a lot of people know who Clive Cussler is because he's a very famous author. Well, the Sahara. He wrote, wrote the, the movie book, that, right? that our buddy Steve Zahn starred in. Correct. He wrote that book. As a matter of fact, Steve told me that he uh, actually had to be interviewed by Clive Cussler before he could get the job. Huh. And I think we lost Clive Cussler. Was it last year or year before? I don't know. I think he passed away. But anyway, he'd formed this this NUMA, National Underwater Marine uh Association, Marine Agency, I guess called, and they had looked for this Hunley for 15 years. Wow. Now, you know, after a while. Now what does that not, cost? Yeah, uh, well, I'll tell you, the, the cost of getting it up and everything here, I don't know what it costs to look for it, but it costs $17 million just to get it up out of the water. And that's not counting the 15 years no. of looking for it? Yeah. No. That's crazy. Well, now that's... Clive, this organization he founded, they have they have found all kinds of stuff. And the last one of the last things they were looking for was uh, PT one hundred and nine of John Kennedy's boat that went down in the South Pacific. They, 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 they weren't successful in finding that. One of the problems is that's a wooden boat too, yeah. and it's harder to find. But anyway, getting off the subject. But this sub was in thirty feet of water. They found it in on May the thirtieth of nineteen ninety five. Now I got a call in June of nineteen ninety five. And I get a call from a friend who lives in Charleston that's quite a Civil War researcher. And he kept up with it. And he had some information. He couldn't tell me who told him. But he said, man, I think they found it. He said, they haven't announced it yet. But he said, I think they found it. I said, you've got to be kidding. And I said, I've got to be there when they bring this thing out of the water. He said, we, we are going to be there when they bring it out of the water. We're going to be there. I said, well, just count me in. Okay. <laughs> So we started getting rumbles that, hey, you know, and then finally they made the announcement that they had found it. Now, this thing was 500 yards north, Brian, of the Housatonic, going the opposite direction of Sullivan's Island. And that's what threw everybody off. The search had always been... Between the Housatonic and the island. Yeah. Now, there's a lot of mysteries about what the crew was doing, and, and this is what gets real interesting for me is... What were they doing? What were they, you know, once this thing blew up, what happened? You know, uh, did the concussion kill them? Did they run out of oxygen? What? No one knows for sure, but we've got some really sharp people that have studied this intensely. Now, first of all, when they found the sub and they brought it up, they had to understrap this thing with like 33 bags of air and straps that support this thing. They built a structure under the water, slung this thing in these slings, laying it, it was laying over on its side. They did not change the anything about the, the way the pitch of the submarine. It was filled with sediment, but the men were still in it. Really? Yes. And so they bring the, the sub up, and I was out there in the boat about 100 feet from it when it broke water. And that's the first light of day that it's seen since 1864. It's amazing. It was an amazing experience. The, the harbor at Charleston was lined with people. Uh, there was celebrations and shooting of cannons and the Yorktown carrier. There was a, people lined up all down. And how close the, were you all able to get to this? Oh, it's probably 100 feet from it. Maybe. Oh, so maybe, you, no, maybe, uh, I'd say maybe a little farther than that, maybe 100 yards. 
within a hundred yards. Probably. So you're almost on top of all yeah, this. We were just, yeah, they had a perimeter you couldn't go around, you know, so far because it was dangerous. Right. Good. And the main thing was, is no danger for people, but they didn't want anybody, you know, messing with the. It was a very delicate operation when they brought the when they brought it up with the crane, and they had to set it on a barge. Um, the, the 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 rough the seas mm-hmm. had gotten a little bit rough and. Um, Boy, we had a time getting out there. We had to stop and use a bilge pump on our boat two or three times because of the water coming over, uh, getting in the boat. Uh, it was a pretty rough sea that day. But, but where the fresh water and the salt water meet, that's where it was the roughest. Mm-hmm. So as you was coming out Charleston Harbor, when you hit the salt water, that's where the, you have the roughest water. But anyhow, they, they, they successfully set it on the barge and immediately started spraying it with water. And they had this big flotilla as we bring it in to Warren Leash Laboratories in Charleston. So, but the mystery is what happened to the men, okay? So this is where archaeology is really good. We, we, no one was there that lived, could tell a story. There were some eyewitnesses on the Housatanic that said things, and some of them contradict and so forth. But archaeology kind of doesn't lie, you know. So as they started going down the sediment layers, they started finding human remains. Okay, now, each man was sitting where he's supposed to sit. There was no evidence of struggle. And what tells us is, is these men probably didn't drown. These men probably suffocated, suffocated or died from the concussion of a 135-pound bomb going off underwater. Now, I know one thing. They probably never blew anything up that big mm-hmm. testing it. Now, there's a couple theories. They both have really good um, uh, research. And who knows, it could be a combination of both of these things. But the two best theories is, the first theory is that the concussion killed them, knocked them out. The subs glide, s- slid down, stuck in the mud, and never they didn't have the, and they suffocated. Man. Now, there was a lady that was at the Hunley Museum, which I've been to four or five times. My latest time was New Year's Eve of this year. We were there. And one was, she was uh, 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 an expert in pulmonology and, and respiration and so forth. And she says that people that get low of oxygen don't know it. She said she's had people that their oxygen levels were so low, they are acting perfectly normal, and all of a sudden, like that, they were gone. And she said that it's very likely that they could have got down there and through their exertion and excitement of going through this, that they ran out of oxygen and just suffocated, that the blast didn't really kill them, but they just suffocated. And it would have happened within a few minutes of each one of them. Now, given some thought to that, Brian, having looked at this interior of this submarine and studying it over the years, if one man passed out and fell over that crank... Somebody would have to hold him up. So then you're taking two men out of the operation. So then you're having less men to crank this thing. And so if they're if they're exerting themselves and there's less men, then that would bring on more trauma to those that are trying to get it off and more oxygen. And, and either way, it was just like a death trap. So did they have ballast? They filled with water yes, to make it. Yes, okay. they they did. They had they had some technology that would surprise you. Now, when they found the sub, it had this forty foot spar on it. 
no, excuse me, for a 17-foot spar, not 40-foot. The, the ship was 40-foot. It had a 17-foot spar on it, and it had this big nut that I have a copy of here, and we'll show this on our Facebook, and they made a casting of this big nut, and they could not bring that sub up with that spar on it because it would just mess everything up. And so they were trying to come up with all the ways they could unscrew get this nut to unscrew this spar that's on the front of this submarine. And what was really interesting and funny was the archaeologists, they had all this debate on how to do things. They all, So finally a guy said, well, why don't you just take a wrench down there and see if it'll just screw <laughs> off? <laughs> and so, so they did, and it worked. The guy took a sledgehammer and a wrench, and he put a wrench on it. He hit it one time with a sledgehammer, and it started to move, and he said, my golly, I think we got something here. <laughs> so they, they unscrewed it. They took that off. It made it a lot easier to raise it. But uh, it was taken to Warner Leach Laboratories, and you can go see it today. They have completed pretty much the archaeological aspect of it. Um, they're still doing conservation on materials that they found in the sub. You can see a whole lot of, of what was in the sub. That $20 gold piece, by the way, was found right where the commander was sitting, George Dixon. And uh, the excitement over that was tremendous. Uh, they, they really had a thought that it would be there, but they didn't know for sure. And the head archaeologist, when she got down to that point and she found that coin, she said, as soon as I put my hands on it, I immediately knew what it was. But no one knew that he had engraved it. Oh, okay. And by the way, his skeletal remains, the story of the bullet hitting him in the leg, they did find trauma to that leg bone where that bullet now, did they bury the remains of these men? That yes, uh huh. The the remains were buried in two thousand four, and matter of fact, all the Hunley crews are buried there in Charleston at Magnolia Cemetery. And if anybody would like to go there, don't do what I did. I went there in the dark, and it was just late after we took a ghost tour, <laughs> and I was in the mood to go to this. This uh, I thought it was a little cemetery. Uh, but I don't know why I thought that, but it's not. And uh, anyway, I get there in the dark, and uh, my wife just throws a fit and says, we're not going to walk around in this creepy place after dark. <laughs> so I had to go back the next day, and it's all the way in the back of the cemetery, and they have a really nice, um, uh, appropriate burial for those men. They were they were buried in uh, their names. Uh, again, I, I don't have all their names, but all the information that they have to date is on those tombstones and their stories as much as they know it. Some of them, they know very little about them. That's amazing. It's an amazing It's an amazing story. History. Anything else? I'm good. All right. Hey, this is Brian. I just want to take a minute to recommend a great local podcast. If you're a fan of true crime podcasts, the Murder Police podcast is for you. The great thing about it is you get to hear firsthand accounts of the, from the men and women that work these cases, the prosecutors that tried these cases. You will love this podcast, so make sure you check out the Murder Police Podcast. All right. Well, thank you for being part of Uncommon History of the South Podcast. If you would like to help support our cast, tell your friends about us. Share it. Uh, make sure you subscribe for free on Spotify, Apple, Amazon Music, YouTube, your favorite podcast listening app. And if you would like to listen to our podcast on Apple, if you listen to our podcast on Apple, leave a five-star review and a comment. This will help others find our podcast. To find out more about the podcast, keep up with what we're doing, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Uncommon History of the South is created and produced by Harold Edwards and Brian Woodward.